0: Wonderful to be with you this morning. Thank you for being here. Uh, this is blue shirt day, apparently. Hansley had a blue shirt. I have a blue shirt. See, there he is. Tad has a blue shirt. In the back at the sound booth. Brandon was red though. Blue shirt. What? Brandon was red though. Brandon was red. He's still learning. If you would, turn with me to Exodus 20, and if there are parents that have kids up through fifth grade, if you'd like for them to go to some age-specific teaching, that's offered now out in the patio. If not, totally fine to have them stay here and receive the word with us. If you're uh, new here today, perhaps for the first time or just passing through with family, welcome. Great to see you. Uh, We are a church that uh, believes what all true churches believe, and that's that God speaks to His people through His Word, and that we can be sure what He says because He's written it down for us. And so our habit is to uh, just start at a book of the Bible and work our way through it. And right now, we happen to be in Exodus, which is the second book in the Bible, and we'll be in Exodus 20 yeah, if you don't have a Bible underneath the seat in front of you, there are blue ones, and you can turn to page thirty-five where we'll be. Now, we live in a paradoxical age. On the one hand, people often say things like "Follow your heart," "You do you," "Right and wrong are whatever you decide." yourself. Yet on the other hand, often the very same people telling us this will cancel those who have the audacity to violate any number of assumed commands. One need look no further than the current flashpoint over gender and sexuality to discover what a confusing time this is. One author I read this week put it this way, as a culture, we may be quite free and liberal when it comes to sex, but we become absolutely fundamentalists when it comes to the claims of the sexual revolution. Do you see how those things are incompatible? That that way of thinking is inconsistent in and of itself? To put that a different way, we are a society with a moral code. Even if some people use their moral code to assert they don't have one. And then crush those who point that out. Thankfully, the Scriptures are clear. And so, while we may live in a confusing era, we need not be confused, not because we're better or smarter or morally superior, quite the opposite, but simply because God's Word cuts through that confusion. We need not live under the delusion that we are a law unto ourselves. That is a horrible way to live. I've tried it and it didn't work very well. The refrain from one of the darkest eras in the Bible can be found on the pages of the book of Judges. It's one of the darkest times in all of scripture. And there's a a phrase repeated a couple of times in Judges. Maybe you know it. It says, everyone did what was right In his own eyes. Now, since that's the motto of our own day, that might sound good, maybe even freeing and right. But even a cursory reading of Judges reveals where this will lead, and it's nowhere good. Praise God that the scriptures lay out a better way that the Scriptures provide the clarity we all need. If we want to live blessed lives, if we want to have clarity on what provides a life that's joyful and free versus a life that might appear like it will start joyful but will end in lots of pain. If we desire to know right from wrong, if we want to be happy, stable, nourished, fruitful people, then we have to yearn to abide by what God expects. Because what God expects isn't arbitrary. He didn't randomly come up with the weirdest laws he could possibly think of one day, just to say, have fun with that one. No, he's given us commandments that are an expression of who he is. God's laws are a verbal revelation of his character. And if God's people seek to be like him, then one way we pursue that is by obeying what he says. If we want to know, we need look no further than the commandments in Exodus 20. Last Sunday, we tackled Exodus 19, a powerful chapter where Moses serves as the mediator, preparing Israel to meet God at Mount Sinai, that which we'll look at today. The Lord had rescued His people out of slavery back in Egypt, and now He's going to lay out a covenant for them, for life as His redeemed. You might think of Exodus 20 as God giving the people a DTR. He's defining the relationship that He has created for them. Chapter 19 is the on-ramp into chapter 20. What we explored last week, if you were here and saw the gravity of the situation, And God preparing them was to get them to the place of being ready to hear his commands. As we read, I'll read in just a moment. Would you consider this as I go through these verses? God's people are set apart to live distinct lives that reveal his character. God's people are set apart to live distinct lives. That reflect his character. That's what his commandments are about: understanding him more clearly, and then reflecting him more clearly before the watching world. Let's listen closely, Churchill Mill, because the moral law given to the Jews some 3,500 years ago, is the same law. Given to us. Yes, it's repeated, restated, very slightly revised in one commandment, but largely unchanged. What God said to them at Mount Sinai is still what He says to us in Tempe. I pray this law would become our delight, and that as bizarre as it may sound to you, you could find yourself in the coming week meditating on these words day and night and finding joy in them. That's what Psalm 1 calls us to. This is God's word starting in verse 1. God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, You, your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, your sojourner within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that's in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male donkey, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything else that is your neighbor's. The overarching message of these 17 verses is that all those rescued by God must live for God by obeying His commandments. All those rescued by God must live for God by obeying His commandments. Now, as you look at that sentence here on the screen, that's my attempt at summarizing the big message of those verses. As you focus on it, depending on your background and your experience and your own personality, it may be rather easy to only notice the second half of that sentence. Live for God by obeying His commandments. Now, is that true in and of itself? Yes, of course. But it's truncated and it rips the Ten Commandments from their context. And that's a very, foolish thing to do, we need the first half of the sentence to understand the second half. God did not give the Ten Commandments to Israel so that by obeying them, people would thereby earn their way into His saving grace. The Ten Commandments are not a treadmill to run on to gain the acceptance of God because running on a treadmill won't get you anywhere. You'll still be in the same room wherever you started running. That's how it works if you try to earn a relationship with God. You may exhaust yourself, you may get very sweaty, you may fall asleep and trip and slide and get slammed against the wall. (laughs) But you will not get anywhere. The Ten Commandments were never intended to be the means by which people earn a relationship with God. Even the original giving of them was not that. Now, how do we know that? Because they already had it. They'd already been rescued out of slavery and brought to Sinai. Look at verse 2. I am, not I will be, I am the Lord your God who will bring you out of the land of Egypt if you happen to do exactly what I say. No, it's past tense. I brought you. I already did this for you. It's finished. It's done. God already set his saving affection on his people. Why? Because he chose to. The love of God is the purest love there is. It is in no way, shape, or form contingent on your prior love or obedience. God loves you because He loves you. That's what makes that love unlike any other love you will ever experience, unless its source is coming from one who has that love. If I've experienced the love of God that I didn't earn, then I'm learning how to love you with a love you didn't earn. That's how Christian love is supposed to work. But it's only pure when it comes directly from God. God already designated them as His people. He already delivered them out of Egypt. They've already been freed from Pharaoh. And therefore, they were called to obey. You see why that first half of the sentence is so critical? It's because the law was never intended to be the means through which you earn salvation. One scholar put it this way, the law of God is the way of life he set before those whom he has saved. And they engage in that way of life as a response of love and gratitude to God their Redeemer. Grace and law belong together. For grace leads to law. Saving love leads to and excites grateful love expressed in obedience. So well put. Is absolutely critical to grasp before I spend the majority of this time telling you what God commands. I want you to first hear the grounds for those commands. Salvation is by grace, not by works. And yet, those who are saved must follow with works. Now, what I'd like to do this morning is spend some time walking through each of these commandments, explaining what they mean Giving some examples, but here's the deal. Last summer, when I was planning out the Exodus series, when I came to this passage, I had a terrible time deciding: should I do these in one sermon, or should I do them in ten sermons? And uh, I decided you might not like ten; that that might be too slow, but This last week, as I've worked on this and prayed about it and learned more and more and more myself, as I've delighted in the law, I came to the conclusion on Thursday there's just too much here that we really need. And so, what we've decided to do is this morning, uh, focus our energies on the first four commandments because they all have to do with how we relate to God. And then invite you to come back this afternoon or evening and we'll spend time looking at the final six, which are all about how we relate to each other. And so, this is bonus sermon day. (laughs) The thing everyone always dreams of. (laughs) All right? So, I wanna invite you To come back tonight at 5.30, I promise we'll be done in one hour. There's not going to be singing or childcare or gospel project because this was so last minute, we didn't set any of those other things up. If you want to bring something to eat with you, feel free. This will be trimmed down, nothing but sit probably in these two sections. Let's look at the second six. I think I can do that in about 45 minutes. And then I'll try to spend maybe 15 minutes answering questions people may have about how these commandments apply, or what what are the different kinds of uses of the law. There's lots and lots and lots of things to talk about. Or should the government be based on these laws? There's lots of stuff. So if you're free, uh, please join me tonight at 530 30. I really believe there's some key lessons in these verses we need to hear, especially in that final six. Things about parenting, things about sex, things about coveting. Because for every command that prohibits something, it also is intended to open a whole world of things that are free to be done and Every commandment's actually a category of commandments. I'll show you that when one of them we go through tonight. But for today, this morning, let's look at the first four. The first commandment arrives rather unsurprisingly, especially as we've worked our way through Exodus. Because in Egypt, there were thousands of gods that the Egyptians worshiped. And here as God's constituting his new people that he's rescued out of that environment, it should be no surprise to us at all as he set out in Exodus to show he is the God, that he would start out his list by saying, verse three, you shall have no other gods before me. The Lord demands, brothers and sisters, undivided, absolute loyalty and rightly so, because there are no other gods. They don't exist. They're a figment of our imagination. The words before me in that command don't mean something like this, worship me first, and then worship whoever else you want. Kind of sounds that way. Instead, what it means is, God is highlighting that He's present among his people. He's saying, I'm with you. And so, any idol worship will be seen by him and will be understood as a rejection of him. And so, this commandment is highlighting, I am with you. Therefore, don't do what the Egyptians were doing and don't do what the land you're going into is full of people who also do. Instead, worship me and me alone. Now, it's hard for us in a society that is rapidly secularizing and that is a melting pot for the world to imagine how strange it is historically that the Israelites were told to worship one God. Everyone around them saw a God everywhere but God said there's only one, one God, worship me. Just as a wife rightly demands a place of exclusivity in her husband's heart, in which she will not share him in particular ways with anybody else, God will not allow our affections to be shared with false gods. He commands complete fidelity, and it's right for Him to do so. This is why the Scriptures describe so often the relationship between God and His people as a husband and His bride. In the ancient world, as I've said, false gods were as common as breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Polytheism was everywhere. And that's true in many parts of the world today. It just happens to not be here. But don't be fooled. The allure of worshiping false gods abounds nonetheless. We may have cut out the habit of looking to the sun and the rain and the crops. And I could go on and on and on as gods as God's to be worshiped and obeyed. But anything or anyone we expect to provide us something that only God can has become to us a God. It has become to us a thing we worship. It has become to us something we serve. Because we expect to get something back. Is there something in your life, Christian, that you can't imagine living without? That you would find yourself completely falling apart if it was taken from you? Is there some good thing in your life that's become an ultimate thing? Like the thing that defines you? Is there someone besides God who consumes your deepest longings, thoughts, and affections? If so, then that has become a God you worship, and you have not been true to the first commandment. We are all prone to this. John Calvin famously said, the heart is an idle factory. If you're recognizing that in yourself, then today's a day to repent. Now, if the first commandment is about who we worship, the second commandment is about how. God cares not only that He is worshiped, but in what ways He is worshiped. And so in verse 4, when he says, "'You shall not make for yourself a carved image, "'or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above "'or earth beneath or in water below. "'You shall not bow down to them or serve them, "'for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God.'" Now that jealous is the jealousy of a wife for her husband and a husband for her wife, you gain something incredible in marriage. It also means you give up things. And if you don't give those things up, the marriage is not gonna work. Same thing with God. God must not be pictured or represented by any object. <laughs> now of the 10, this is probably the strangest one to us, because we are not prone to this, the majority of us. But do you see that if you take a piece of wood and carve something in it meant to represent God and then begin to worship it, then you've actually ceased worshiping God and now you're worshiping this thing that you've carved. Those of us who are here from the eastern side of the world, there are still places where this is very, very, very common. Those of you from the southern hemisphere, on this half of the world, there are still places where this is incredibly common. I have sat in homes and witnessed to people whose place they live is full of idols. What... Well, <laughs> One time, my dad and I were, um, if you see him, you should tease him about this. When I was a a senior in high school and I was graduating, he told me he would take me anywhere I wanted to go for a present within the United States. And um, so we flew to a particular city, and we're going to go to a basketball game. We got in a taxi very late at night, and the front of the taxi was filled with all this gold stuff. And then hanging from the rearview mirror was what looked like a, a gold crown. And so my dad said to the driver, I'd love to hear about your, your objects of worship. And the guy said, those are just air fresheners. <laughs> so I've had fun with that ever since. In holy, righteous jealousy, God calls for undivided devotion. He won't tolerate even objects being fashioned into forms that we foolishly imagine would picture Him. Why? Because then you're worshiping that thing, not Him. And God is spirit. He doesn't have a body Worshipping a representation of him is fashioning another God. Now, probably what's most important about the second commandment is to grasp this concept. On this side of heaven, meaning Christian, before you die or Jesus returns, God's people worship him by faith, not by sight. We see God by hearing. This is why our worship gatherings are so full of Scripture because it's the Scripture the Spirit uses to draw us into worship, to teach us, to equip us, to send us out. It's why we never use pictures on the screens to depict some representation of God. It's why we never, ever, ever stray very far at all from the Scriptures. Because here, on this side of heaven, we see God through His Word. We see with eyes of faith, not with our physical eyeballs. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Now the third commandment. The third commandment says this, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. I ate my fair share of bars of soap as a child, in part because of this commandment. To take God's name in vain, of course involves attaching curse words to God's name. It's creating a last name or middle name for God or Jesus that is a curse word is not something that honors him. But that's not all that this commandment is about. More is being expressed than just that. This might surprise you, but this commandment also applies to these kinds of things. Singing a worship song in a thoughtless, insincere way is taking the name of the Lord in vain because Think of what the opposite of the commandment is. The opposite of the commandment is honoring the Lord in what we say. And so if I, as a husband, sit with my wife as she talks about her day, and I pretend, and I nod my head like this, but I'm not listening. I'm sure, husbands, none of you have ever done that. Then I'm not honoring her I'm pretending. If we stand and sing something we don't actually mean about God, then we are taking his name in vain. Externally portraying a spiritual vitality and referring to the Lord with super spiritual language when inside you have no abiding relationship with him. That's taking the name of God in vain. Saying or doing anything that harms his reputation is taking his name in vain. In the Bible, the name of someone evoked not just the audible sound, it wasn't just what they're called. It's like taking a giant scooper and scooping up their character and all that they are. That's what a name is in the scriptures. That's why many times when someone encountered God and God changed them and then they were to go live new life, their name was changed. So if we do anything misrepresenting God as Christians, then we're actually taking God's name in vain. Now we're about as informal of a society as is possible. Yet this commandment calls us to revere God, to respect Him, to hold Him with highest regard, and to always, always, always speak sincerely of Him, never flippant. That doesn't mean private or gathered worship has to be stuffy and boring and hands crossed, scared to express your heart to God in worship. That's not at all what I'm advocating for. Instead, I'm saying we just don't take God flippantly. We remember who we're dealing with. As I said last Sunday, it's not like God is here and we're here. So don't act like that when we come to God. Now, as we reach the fourth commandment, we need to linger here a little bit longer. In contrast to the first three commandments, the fourth begins with the word remember. Why? Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. Why the word remember? Well, partly he didn't want him to forget it. But isn't that true of all of these? I mean, the whole point is live this way. You're not gonna live this way if you don't remember them. So something else is being said there. The command to Sabbath was not new. Earlier in the book of Exodus, they were told, don't go out and gather food. I'll provide you extra the day before. I want you to have a day devoted to rest and worship. But actually, it goes back even further than that. In fact, you can't get off the first page of your Bible. Unless you have one of those little tiny ones. (laughs) The commandment to take a Sabbath comes from the very beginning of Scripture. The Hebrew word Shabbat means to cease. It calls up images of stopping, of resting. Sabbath is a day to cease from the typical demands in life in order to do two things. Not five things, not 10 things, not 20 things. Two. If we track out this principle in Scripture, Sabbath is about... Exercising restful trust in God. Why does Sabbathing an exercise of trust? Well, it's because you could earn more money if you kept working that day. So six days, give yourself to getting stuff done. Seventh day, knock it off. Cease, rest. Rest. And that requires trust in God. Who is the ultimate provider? God. And so ceasing requires trust. Instead of work, rest. Rest and trust God. Today we have replaced rest with entertain. They are not at all the same thing do you ever get up from a binge, a TV binge, feeling rested? You don't because it doesn't work. Now, I'm not saying it's sinful to have a TV or to watch Netflix on your phone or to enjoy some particular YouTuber. That's not at all my point. My point is we need different categories. A little entertainment is fine, but we are absolutely overrun by entertainment. It is the principal thing that causes most of us to feel busy. You've got to rest, and rest does not mean take a vacation where you're running 20 hours a day. And it definitely doesn't mean Fill your life with the consumption of media. It takes diligence to rest in the way God's requiring. I challenge you next Sunday to rest from all things social media and watch how hard it is but it'd be a good thing to do. So, Sabbath means to exercise restful trust in God. And number two, Sabbath means to set aside the day for gathering with God's people to worship. Throughout the Old Testament, Shabbat or Sabbath was observed on Saturday. Now, if the 10 Commandments still apply to our lives as Christians, as I've advocated they do, then why didn't you show up yesterday? Why are we here today? Well, two brief responses to that. Number one, Jesus transformed the fourth commandment in ways that are different than the other nine. The nine have all experienced some kind of change, and I'll talk about that tonight. But this one in particular has been transformed into what many have called the Lord's Day, into a new kind of Sabbath. And he's done so in a couple ways. He's done so by giving us today what the Sabbath of the Old Testament was always pointing forward to, namely a deep spiritual rest, the rest of the gospel, the rest of the that we can sit down on the inside knowing we're saved because of what Jesus did, not what we do. If you wanna read about that, write down somewhere Hebrews 4 and check that out. Today, Christians enjoy the substance, not the shadow. And so for thousands of years, they were told rest, 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 mainly because we wanted us to be able to look back on that and say, wow, thanks for what we have now in Christ. This is why Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The weary and heavy ladenness he was talking about was not, was not from school or work was from slaving away under an oppressive system to try to make yourself right with God. It was spiritual rest he was advocating. And that's what we now have in Christ. We have salvation, a spiritual rest in the gospel. Now, I've got a cough. Sorry. Sorry, thank you for your patience. Although we Christians now enjoy what the Sabbath always prefigured, it remains important to cease from work and to rest and to gather for corporate worship. And we do that on Sundays because that's immediately what the church began doing. Who is it we're gathering to celebrate? Jesus. So, every Sunday is actually an Easter Sunday. So, this is why we worship on Sunday, not Saturday. A couple further comments on the fourth commandment. There are many, many, many laws in the Old Testament. And only the laws in the Old Testament that are repeated or restated in the New Testament are binding on Christians today. For example... There's no commandment in the New Testament to bring a lamb to sacrifice at church. Jesus is the ultimate sacrificial lamb. Therefore, what that commandment pointed ahead to is no longer needed. It's been fulfilled. More than the other nine, though, this fourth commandment underwent the most change. So we're called to something Sabbath like but Jesus has transformed it. And second, a second thing to point out in this category of just miscellaneous items about the Sabbath, several passages in the New Testament say very clearly that we should be careful in how stringent we require each other to do or not do particular things on the Sabbath. Some of you may have grown up in homes where you weren't allowed to do any kind of work at all, any kind of study, or even doing anything that requires someone else to work. That would be a a, a strict application of the Sabbath. Others of you may have grown up in homes that didn't observe this at all because they weren't believing homes. And then people are all across the spectrum. Colossians 2 and Romans 14 both say, be careful not to demand exact Sabbath observance on everyone in the total scope of everything they do. That's an important principle. But at the root of this, what this tells us is don't try to be God. Get some rest and gather with the people of God. One final comment. Notice that the ratio of days outlined is six to one. Not one to six. That is, our expectation ought to be That 85% of our time, our days, are spent at work or school. That's God's design for image bearers. Six days he created, on the seventh he rested. Six days were to get stuff done, on the seventh were to rest. Expect the majority of your life to be working at home with the kids or at the office on the computer or at school with the books. Life is not about entertainment. God expects us with our creative juices that he's given us, and all of us have them, to be productive, to get things done. And part of the way we sustain that is to actually Sabbath, to actually rest. Now, very quickly, would you jump down, and then we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. Would you jump down and look at the reaction? keeping your attention today. Look at the reaction. So skip the other six, we'll talk about them later tonight. And look at the last half of verse nine. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and let them be ready on the third day. Now I'm reading the wrong passage. Sorry. Verse 18. Why didn't you tell me? (laughs) Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. They stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear. God has come to test you, that the fear of Him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Why is that the reaction? God himself is present, revealing his glory and power as never before. This section of Exodus is the only time in the entire Old Testament God spoke directly, audibly to all his people. And when they heard from him, they were terrified. Well, it's because partly these commandments hit them rather hard. They already said God will, yeah, 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 we'll do everything you say. And then when they heard what God said, they said it's too much. These verses make clear Israel's experience terrified them. Why? I think it's because they had a strong new awareness of God's holiness and their lack of it. And these whole, these, these laws reveal character. God's and ours the law showed them the righteous character of god and it showed them their own unrighteousness church the bible's clear from beginning to end there is none righteous no not one there is not a one of us who have not failed every one of the ten commandments Verse 21 recounts the people standing far off, but Moses drawing near. Moses was their mediator. He went up the mountain to meet with God because God had chosen him as the mediator. We too need a mediator. And we have one. We have a better one. Because our mediator went not up Mount Sinai, but up Golgotha. There at Golgotha, our mediator, the law keeper, we find becoming the lawbreaker so that our guilt could be his. Do you hear Galatians 3 as my closing? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might might come to the Gentiles so we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Father, we pray that this hearing of your word would bear great fruit in our lives. I pray that brothers and sisters who are here who have been walking in some sin, would confess it now, even as I pray, would embrace the forgiveness that's theirs in Christ, and then would enjoy this Lord's Supper with new vigor and contentment. And I pray, Father, that if there's any here who don't know you, that they would see that relating to you by virtue of good works or being better than another doesn't work. Because to fail in one commandment is to fail in them all. Pray that they would see their need for Christ and the truthfulness of the cross and that you would save them today in Jesus' name.